Um, have you ever tried to do the right thing the wrong way? And you've been very sincere in what you were trying to do, and um, you were only trying to do what you've been told to do, but maybe you've been told to do something you hadn't been trained to do, and you ended up doing the right thing the wrong way, because I had that happen to me uh, many, many years ago. When I started in college, um, my goal was to be a school teacher um, and a football coach. That's what, that's what I thought my destiny in life was to be, just like my dad's was. Um, in my junior year of college, God kind of rerouted me and showed me that I was supposed to go into ministry. So I ended up in ministry, and one of the things that I had to do over the course of a summer is I had to have an internship where I hung out with a bunch of different pastors and I experienced a lot of different ministry stuff. I just had this list of stuff that I, that I had to do. I had to learn to baptize somebody and I had to learn to do communion and I had to, um, I had to go to a funeral and watch a funeral and I had to um, go to a wedding and watch how to do a wedding um, and I had to learn how to do a Bible study and learn how to preach a sermon. And I had all these things that I had to do and I had to hang out on certain days with a few different pastors and just kind of see what the ministry schedule looked like. So every day, all day, eight to eight plus, um, I'd be hanging out with pastors just watching. And we did anything in ministry that you can imagine doing together. And some of the things that we did um, were home visits to people's houses to do different kind of ministry stuff. And one of the days, we were headed to someone's house, and the pastor I was with said, hey, I've got to go see this couple, um, and I've got to do some marriage counseling with them. So they said, I just want you to sit and watch, and don't say anything, and if at a certain point um, it, it looks like they need a little privacy, I might ask you to leave, or if they have kids that are distracting, and I feel like I need some time with them, I might ask you to just take the kids. You are here to serve me and serve this couple, so just do whatever I say. So, all right, cool, I, I will do that. So we go to this house, we meet this couple, we're kind of making small talk and hanging out, and they've got this three-year-old little daughter that like is, is a firecracker, I mean just bouncing off the walls. And 15, 20 minutes into our talking, um, the pastor looks at me and says, you know, maybe you, should, maybe you should take her and you guys can go play while I talk to her mom and dad. And I thought, all right. Um, you know, I asked the mom and dad, what do we do? And they said, you can take her up to her room. She's got all kinds of stuff to play with up there. So I said, okay. So I follow this little three-year-old girl upstairs and we enter her, her room, which is unlike anything that I had ever been in in my life. It was very pink um, and, and kind of flowery. And there were dolls and there were teddy bears. And there were like a little, she had a little desk with coloring sheets and she had some books um, and some Legos and stuff. Um, and I kind of looked at her and I was 21 years old at the time. I was a college football player. I'd never babysat a little boy, much less a little girl. Um, so she looks at me and she says, what do you want to do? And I look around her room and everything and I said, you want to jump on the bed? Uh, like that was the only thing, it's the only thing that I had ever done in a, in, in a bedroom. So she's like, yeah. So she, you know, I've got, she's like bouncing on this bed. And at one point, she's jumping on this bed, and she, she like kind of stumbled and fell off, and I caught her. Um, and she thought that was really fun. So she continued to act like she was falling off and catching her. And then I got an idea, and I thought, you know, I wonder how far she can jump. So then I started challenging her. I was like, don't fall, jump. So she would, she would jump to me, and I'd back up another step, another step. And she'd jump off, and I'd catch her, and I'd swing her around and start throwing her up her knee. And we were having a great time her jumping off the bed, I kept swinging around throwing, and I kept getting higher and higher and higher. And what I didn't realize is she had um, kind of a vaulted ceiling in her bedroom, and above the bed it was kind of like real high, but around the edges of the room it was, it was much lower, and I didn't really realize that. So one of the times she jumped to me, I swung her around, and I threw her up, and the ceiling wasn't very high where I threw her, and I threw her up, and it was like bang, and she like smacked her head, and it, and it kind of like rocked her for a minute. And I remember setting her down, and adults, like if an adult would, would hit their thumb with a hammer, 
they would speak first and then they would hear what they said and they would feel bad about saying. Kids are the opposite. Takes them a minute or two, especially when they have a concussion, for their thought to get from their brain to their mouth. So I realized I had like this split second to figure out how to minister to this mom and dad by keeping their daughter quiet. So as she's, as she's figuring out that, that, that this hurt, that I just threw her off the ceiling and it hurt her head, she starts to like open her mouth and before a sound can come out, like all I knew to do was to just put my hand over her mouth and hold it there <laughs> until she quit crying. I mean, just like a serial killer. Like I'm in this room like, <laughs> like with my hand over this girl's mouth until she quiets down enough for me to tell her the Bible story about the big fish that swallowed the little girl that told on the guy that threw her against the ceiling. And it's like, you know, so you don't ever want to do that. And we spent the rest of the time just kind of like picking ceiling stuff out of her hair until we could go down. I was trying to do the right thing. I, I was trying to help this couple the only way I knew how. But I was doing the right thing the wrong way. And it didn't quite work out correctly. As we've been studying the book of Acts, we are learning um, how to live the Christian life. And one of the things that I see when we get deep into the book of Acts and that I see as I know people in our congregation very, very well is there are, unfortunately, if you haven't already pulled your sermon notes out, pull them out so you can start following along. There are, there are sadly a lot of Christians trying to live the Christian life without great, great Christian friends. And what I'm learning as I get into the book of Acts is that trying to live a Christian life without great Christian friends is trying to do the right thing the wrong way trying to really get close to Jesus and stay close to Jesus, trying to live for Jesus, desiring to live close to Jesus, but not having any Christians around your life is trying to do the right thing the wrong way, and it doesn't really work well. Last time we were together, we studied Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, a great decision was made that was shaped church for up, up until today, for more than 2,000 years. And that decision was this. Paul and Barnabas went back to Jerusalem and they said, hey, we got a lot of people who want to know Jesus. Tell us how this works. And in Acts chapter 15, the church decided that they weren't going to make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. They were going to make it as easy as possible for people who, to learn who Jesus was, but they weren't going to dilute what it means to follow Jesus. So they said, we're going to make it really easy for people to come to Jesus, but we're going to make it really clear how to follow Jesus, and we're going to let people decide what they want to do. The remainder of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15 on through 28, is the story of a church filled with people who want to do two things. They want to help people know who Jesus is as easily as possible, and they want to help people follow Jesus as clearly as possible. But we find one of the main strategies of that happening is people partnering together to do Christian life with one another. Now, the remainder of the year, as we look at the rest of the book of Acts, we've got two series coming that I think are going to be awesome. On Back to School Sunday, August 23rd, we're starting a series called The Best Yes. And it's all about finding God's purpose for your life. People ask me all the time, what is God's purpose for my life? I believe I can answer that question biblically. And I believe if you search, you can find out what God's will and purpose for your life is. So we're going to take six weeks through the life of the Apostle Paul. We're going to see that what Paul said yes to shaped his life. When he understood what God wanted him to do, he was able to say the best yes, and it meant he had to say a lot of other no's. I have a lot of people in our church who come to me and say, Christian, I think I've said yes to too many things. I think I'm overcommitted in life. I'm doing a lot of things, but I don't feel like I'm doing anything really well. I have a lot of people in our church say, Christian, I can't say no to anyone for anything, including stuff at the church you guys asked me to do. I just have a hard time saying no. How do I, how do I learn what to say yes to? How do I learn what to say no to? 
you find out what God's purpose for your life is, you say yes to that first, and everything else falls around us. We're going to study that for six weeks. Then as we work into the end of the book of Acts, we're going to do a series called Shipwrecked. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. He gets in a terrible shipwreck, and we're going to talk about what happens when life seems to have fallen apart and there's no way forward. And I'm going to ask you during this series to invite every family member and friend you have whose life has fallen to pieces. They are shipwrecked right now, and they don't feel like they can move forward. We're going to see how the Apostle Paul moved forward through a great shipwreck in his life. We start that series with what will be my favorite Sunday of the year. We're inviting a Christian archaeologist by the name of Bob Cornuke to come in. He's known throughout the Christian world as the Christian Indiana Jones. He has discovered, through chasing the Apostle Paul's life, the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. He has found parts of the boat in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea that the Apostle Paul wrecks on uh, in the book of Acts. He believes he's documented findings of Mount Sinai. Uh, He's done huge expeditions to look for Noah's Ark. He's going to talk to us about how archaeology proves so much stuff in the Bible to be accurate historically. I cannot wait for Sunday, October 11. It's going to be awesome as we see that shipwrecks in Scripture and shipwrecks in life are real, and in both of those things we can move through them. But today we look at, as we start out of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas were said, go tell people about Jesus. Make it as easy as possible for people to come to Jesus. Make it as clear as possible for people to follow Jesus. They said, okay, in Acts 15 they start to do that. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can fire up your phone or your tablet if you've got the Bible app. Our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. We're going to read a lot today, so it might be easier to follow along if you have a Bible in your lap. If you didn't bring one today or you need one, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, keep this one. Um, Start reading it and bring it back with you next week. We've given away more than 1,000 Bibles just like this since our church started, and we'd love for you to have one. So put your name in it and keep it if, uh, if you don't have it. Because what we see in the book of Acts... Starting this Sunday and for the next three weeks in Acts 16, 17, 18, and 19, is we see the power of partnership. We see what happens when Christians have other Christians in their life to help them live their Christian life. However, it starts off bad. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 15, we don't start with a good relationship, we start with a bad relationship. We actually start with a relationship that is ended. We see the first thing we look at in the power of partnership in Acts chapter 15 is we call, we see what I call a spiritual relational split. We see the two most influential, important, powerful, impactful pastors in the New Testament church get in a massive argument and they decide not to be friends anymore, to put it lightly. If you remember with me in Acts chapter 14 and 15, Paul and Barnabas were doing ministry all over the world. They went back to Jerusalem and said, we just need your permission to keep doing ministry like this. They said, go do it. So as they leave, they get in this massive argument and we see this spiritual relational split. So as we're digging into how important relationships are, we see the most important one in the Bible at this time fail. Here's what it says in Acts 15, 36. We'll go through the first part of verse 39. It says, sometime later... Paul said to Barnabas, two most influential pastors in the New Testament church, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and he hadn't continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Let's stop right there. We know the Apostle Paul was at a pretty intense moment in his faith at this point. 
He wrote the book of Galatians soon after Acts chapter 15. And in the book of Galatians, he said, I was so mad at the apostle Peter, I almost punched him in the face. He said, I withstood him to his face. And the anger in the tone that Paul was using is, Paul said, I, 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 man, I would throw down right now with anyone who gets in the way of me telling people about Jesus. And Barnabas becomes that. He and Barnabas have a falling out where they had such a sharp disagreement they said, man, I, I'm done with you. And we do not see them ever come back together as great friends in Scripture. They had this spiritual relational split. And some of you in this room have already checked out of this message. You looked at the title of this message. You heard what, me say, what I said earlier about Christian friendships. And you have already decided this is not for you because at some point in your life, you've had a spiritual relational split and you are done being in relationships with Christian people trying to hold each other accountable to grow spiritually. You're like, I've done that. I've tried that. It didn't work. I'm out. And you are, t you are already closed off because in your past, there's been some major conflict. It might be the reason you're at this church instead of the church you used to be at. There was some major relational conflict, and you said, I'm out. And you feel safe here because you're unknown here. You're disconnected here. You can kind of come learn without anyone getting in your business. And you've experienced a spiritual relational split that has caused you to kind of withdraw relationally away from anyone who could really touch your life and pour into you or hold you accountable spiritually. My question to you today is, are you, are you going to be this way for the rest of your life? Like, what's your plan? For those of you who have had a bad spiritual relational experience and you've withdrawn into isolation, what's your plan? Are you planning to stay here for the rest of your life, just not going to trust anyone again, not going to get close to anyone again, never going to be in a small group again, never going to be in a Sunday school class again, never going to confess any of my sin to anyone? I, I've done that. I've been burned. I'm out. What, what is your plan if you've experienced a spiritual relational split? Because here's what we learn from Acts 15. The story of the early church becomes the importance of relationships in spite of previously broken relationships. The story of Acts is not the story of how important relationships are and they never go bad. The story of Acts is how important relationships are even after they've gone bad. You still can't do life alone. And it's funny how, how, how God has things planned for our life that grow us and how Satan takes those same things and he tries to hurt us. Because one of the greatest ways to grow spiritually is to spend time alone with God. It, in spiritual disciplines or the things you do to help yourself grow spiritually, it's called solitude. You can read books about the spiritual discipline of solitude, about getting alone with God. And God says, if you will get alone with me, and really press into me, you can really get to know me well through reading your Bible, through praying, through meditating, through memorizing Scripture. If you will get alone with me and have some quiet moments in your life, you'll really, really grow. But Satan says, I want to take that solitude and turn it into isolation. I want to take what you said, hey, I stepped away from a relationship. I stepped away from a church. I stepped away from a small group. So I was really hurt to just spend a few moments alone with God. But now it's been a few years alone by yourself. And what was intended to strengthen you, some time of solitude, has become a season of isolation, and now it's hurting you spiritually. We know times of personal solitude, they're great for our spiritual growth, but seasons of relational isolation, they disrupt spiritual growth. And that's where some of the people in this congregation, that's where some of the people who are going to podcast this later, that's where some of the people who are going to watch this at home are. You're sitting at home watching it on a computer because you don't even want to walk into a church because of how you've been hurt. And you've gone from solitude and really getting close to God and leaning on him to isolation. 
you've disrupted the flow of what God wants to do in your life. This could have happened in the early church. Paul and Barnabas could have said, I'm done. I, I gave my life to do ministry with this guy, and he turned on me. I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't want any more Christian friends. I don't want any more ministry partners. But Paul and Barnabas knew if they were going to keep having impact and influence for Jesus, even with the reality of past conflict and broken relationships, they had to try again. So we see as we keep moving through the book of Acts, not only spiritual, relational conflict, but we see new relationships formed, and we see important relationships formed. The early church could have quit with the first argument between two Christians who would never be close again. Some of you, some of your best Christian friends, you're not close to anymore. You'll never be close to them anymore. It happens, unfortunately. But does that mean you can't ever be a good Christian friend to anyone ever again? In the book of Acts, they said, we've just got to find new friends and keep pushing forward. Look at Acts 15.39, and I'm going to read through Acts 16.25, so kind of lock in with your attention as we get into God's Word. We'll start in Acts 15.39 at the front. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark. He sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they neither one went alone. They both found another friend and kept moving forward. Chapter 16 says, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer whose father was a Greek. And the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, so Paul wanted to take him along on the journey too. Skip down to verse 6. So now Paul has several new friends on his journey. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, so they passed by Mysia. They went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, from Troas. We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district in Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Let me stop right here and say, though, all those names of places that are really annoying to read through, that's how guys like Bob Cornuke knew that Paul was real and his ministry was real because they found all those places. They've, they've archaeologically uncovered all the places that the apostle Paul went. They were there when the Bible says they were there. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer down by the river, we were met by a female slave with a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Stop right there. I love the spirit of Paul right here. He's angry. He's annoyed. He reminds me of myself sometimes. Good to know that God can use people who sometimes have a temper and sometimes get annoyed at demon-possessed people following around yelling at him. Um, so verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so 
annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. I love it. It didn't say he led her to Christ. It didn't say he ministered to her. It didn't say he taught a lesson. It didn't say that he overcame the demon. It just said he, was, he finally got so fed up. He was like, for Pete's sake, just go away. But he probably didn't say for Pete's sake because he just had a, fi- a fight with Peter, so he probably wasn't real high on Peter. So maybe he said, for Paul's sake. I don't know what he said, but he was like, gosh, leave me alone. Go away. I, I love this picture of Paul. It just makes me chuckle. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. He fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Let's stop right there. Because here's what we see. We started this story with Paul by himself. He and Barnabas got into it. Barnabas left. Paul was left by himself. Some of you today are by yourself spiritually. What's really sad in this story is there were actually three of them. Paul and Barnabas and Mark were kind of together. And Barnabas and Mark went by themselves. Paul was left alone. Maybe you've been the one who's been left alone. Maybe your small group kept moving on without you. Maybe your family kept moving on without you. Maybe your pack of friends kept moving on without you. And you're the Apostle Paul saying, what do I do? What did Paul do? He found Silas. He found Timothy. And he said, let's, let's go. I guess I got to find some new friends. Paul didn't let the relational conflict stall his spiritual development. He didn't let the relational conflict stall his spiritual impact. But he also didn't let spiritual isolation become his spiritual reality. And that's where some of you are. And you have to ask your question, what's your plan? Those of you who are living in spiritual isolation today because of relational conflict yesterday, what's your plan for tomorrow? Do you just stand around and say, I guess I'm done now? I guess I'll never trust anyone. I guess I'll never be friends with anyone. I guess I'll never let anyone else in. Or do you attempt to do it again and by that maybe attempt getting hurt again? Paul said... If we're going to keep moving forward, we've got, we got to keep trying. As a matter of fact, we actually never see Paul stop trying throughout all of Scripture. Paul is so seldom found alone in Scripture that if you just read Scripture and you didn't understand it much, you could actually believe his middle name was And. The Apostle Paul's name is followed so often by And because he was never alone that you could read and think, okay, Paul And, what was his last name? Hi, my name's Paul And. No, L- listen to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to go fast, but find the verses and get your pens ready, okay? Nine times in Acts 16 through Acts 17, verse 1. Paul and, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled through the region. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us. Verse 19, when her owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas. Verse 29, The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Verse 38. The officers reported this to the magistrates when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Verse 40. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions. You get it? More than that, when we look at Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, 13 times, Paul said, here's my truth to you. Eight of those times, Paul said, me and this person. Paul started with his letters. Paul and this person are writing to you. 
1 Corinthians, Paul and Sosthenes. 2 Corinthians, Paul and Timothy. Galatians, Paul and the whole church. Philippians, Paul and Timothy. Colossians, Paul and Timothy. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul and Silas and Timothy. Philemon, Paul and Timothy. Paul said, I can't do Christian life alone. So let me ask you this question. Who's on the other side of your and? Who is on the other side of your and? Maybe that's, maybe that's a way to ask this question to get your attention. You and who? Make sure each other's reading the Bible every night. You and who? Celebrate when things go really well spiritually. You and who stop and pray when things get really serious. You and who cry together when things go poorly. You and who have spiritual goals. You and who make sure that y'all aren't, aren't drifting in a, in a poor direction spiritually. You and who, because Paul always had his and. Paul and somebody. And man, it's easier to live for Jesus when there's somebody on the other side of your and who's living for Jesus with you. We learned through just Acts 16 that Christian partnerships, Christian friendships, they make the good times in our life more enjoyable and they make the bad times more bearable. We saw both of that in, of those in Acts chapter 16. When Paul went down the river and they were leading people to Jesus and the church was growing, Silas was there with him. He never had to go home by himself at night, but he had someone with him. And when he ended up in jail, he wasn't there alone, but he had someone with him. Earlier this year, at the end of May, I was in Israel. My favorite place on planet Earth is the country of Israel. My favorite place within Israel is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee region where Jesus lived and grew up. Um, the Sea of Galilee where Jesus walked on water, where Peter worked as a fisherman, where Peter lived kind of on the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's, it's the most beautiful place to me on planet Earth. If you've not been there, um, one day you'll have to go and, and I'll show you. And I, I think you would agree with me. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. And we always go, before the team comes to Israel, we have an advanced team that goes two days early. We check into all the hotels, we pick up all the cars, we make all the dinner reservations, we pick up all the tickets to all the national parks. We basically get the trip set so when our team lands, they walk out of the airport into the car and bang, we're, we're off and running. And that first night I was there, and I was alone as a part of this advanced team. We'd gone all over Israel, and I was in a five-star hotel. I'd just eaten dinner on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the Sea of Galilee coming up against this patio that I was on. My room, I looked out, I could oversee the Sea of Galilee that was lit up by the moon. I'm in my favorite place on planet Earth in a five-star hotel, and I was lonely. And I was like, man, I wish, somebody, I wish somebody was here with me. And that 12 hours I spent in my hotel room together, I, I was in my favorite place, but I was by myself. And I thought, man, people make good times great times. They make good times better. And people make bad times more bearable. Several years ago, I was in China, spent five days in Beijing. Then we flew down to Hong Kong and spent five days in Hong Kong. And I didn't really understand how getting in and out of communist China works, but you have to write the Chinese government before you go and get permission to come. They send you a document called a visa, and when you get to the border, the visa says, yeah, the Chinese government says this person could come in. So we spent our five days in Beijing. It was great. Went down in Hong Kong, third or fourth day in Hong Kong, Danielle and I's brother were there, and we were kind of bored, and we said, hey, let's go back to China um, and just hang out in China for a day. So we took a train from Hong Kong up into China, and we got to the border patrol again, and we got to the Chinese border, and we kind of gave them our passports, and the guys didn't talk to us, but they started talking to each other, the guys behind the glass. And Danielle's brother, the guy talking to her, he took his passport, and he took him over in like a little holding area, and he made him sit there. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, that, that's not good. And then my guy came back without my passport, and he said, you have, to go, you have to go over there too. So all of a sudden, I'm in communist China with no passport in a holding area. And I was really glad somebody was there with me. 
And I was really glad that I was faster than who I was with because I thought if I make a run for this, I might only catch one of us. So, you know, I'll kiss his baby when I get home and say, you know, sorry. And he said to tell you he loves you and he's a great American. But like I, like, I was so glad I wasn't by myself. And they ended up coming back and saying, hey, your visa, said, the Chinese government said you could come here once. Why are you trying to come here twice? We're like, uh, we just wanted to hang out. And they're like, no, you're not allowed to do that. So go back and don't ever come back. Um, so I've never been back since then. And I don't know that I'll be back, but I know this. I was glad I wasn't alone that day. And on your bad day, if you don't have anyone to follow your and, it might be really lonely. And on your good day, if you don't have anyone to follow your and, it won't be as enjoyable because Christian relationships are important. And when we read through the New Testament, we find spiritual partnerships. They aren't just a New Testament reality. They're not just in the Bible. They're actually a New Testament strategy started by Jesus when he led his disciples. He said, when you all do life, you're going to do life two, two by two. He sent 70 of his disciples out who he trained to do ministry one time. He could have sent them to 70 places to have double the impact, but he sent them to 35. He said, it's more important that you have someone with you than we impact more places. When Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, he could have sent them to 12 villages. He sent them to six. He said, it's more important that you have somebody with you than we double our impact because your intimacy with a Christian friend is always going to drive your impact for Jesus later in life. So we said when we put together our church, there's four things that every Christian has to do if they want to develop. One, they've got to experience worship weekly. We call them our four E's. When you read the early church, they got together, they sang songs, they worshiped, they prayed, and somebody stood up. And they kind of taught them God's word in a way that they couldn't understand it, just reading it. So we do that on Sunday mornings here. And then we said that Christians all have to, um, they all have to engage in Christian relationships in a small group. And if a Christian is unwilling to go from Sunday church to a secondary location where they can talk with people and get to know people and develop relationships, their growth is going to be stunted. And then we said we want every Christian to embrace serving. In the early church, they all found their purpose. We're going to teach you that over the next six or eight weeks. They found their place and they started having impact for Jesus. And then we said everyone should always want to be equipped with a spiritual growth plan, which, which always asks this, what's next? Here's why I'm spiritually, what's, what's next? Because there's continual development. And where most people in our church get stalled is between the first two E's. Come to church on Sunday morning, I am not going to go get engaged with a group of people that I don't know, might not like, might not trust, I've had a bad experience, and the growth gets stalled in isolation. So I just can't beg you enough to take the next step in your spiritual development and to risk, and for many of you it's a risk, risk joining a group. We know it's not easy. We know it's difficult. It's why at our church, Pastor Ryan puts together, he runs our small group ministry, puts together events called Test Drive. It basically says this, hey, you might be uncomfortable committing to a small group for six or eight weeks, so just commit for one night. Come for 90 minutes, sit down, have some coffee, meet some people. If it goes really, really bad, you don't have to be a part of this right now. If it goes really, really good, maybe you can take the next step. But some of you are in here, you've not joined a small group yet. You need to go to Test Drive on Sunday night, August 16th. And say, I won't commit my whole life, but I'll give one night to see how this works and see if Christian partnerships can't strengthen your life spiritually. You know, the, ch the early church was known so much for how much time they spent together outside of church that when you read Roman history, two of the best English words to describe how the Romans described the Christian church were cannibals and hippies. And many of you who weren't paying attention just looked up. That's right. The Romans, they didn't use those words. They actually used one of them. The Romans, when writing about this newfound Christian church, described the people as cannibals and hippies. They described them as cannibals because they knew when the church got together, 
they took the body and the blood of Christ. Every time they got together, they would do communion. So we know communion was such a part of the early church that people on the outside, one thing they knew about Christians getting together is that when Christians got together, they would, they would take the body and blood of Christ, however that works. And, and the historians wondered if maybe they were a cannibalistic religion because they were always talking about body and blood. And then they weren't called hippies, but one thing that the Christians were known for in history is what they called their, their love feast. They said these people get together and they just hang out. They have meals and they spend like afternoons together and they really love each other. And when people outside the church looked at the church, they said, this is what we see in the church. A bunch of people who are always hanging out who really love each other. I don't know that that's how people who don't go to church would describe Christians today. But it should be. Because that is a formula that works. And then finally, number three. In Acts chapter 16, we see kind of a final step, which I think is, is just awesome. It's, it's a great eye-opener, and it's a great challenge at the same time. We see the blessing of what I call family faith here. And here's why I say it's eye-opening, because there, there are many in this room who did not have the blessing of family faith. And what I mean by that is you don't own the faith of your family. Your family really didn't have any faith. But it's a challenge because those of us who are parents, those of us who are grandparents, those of us who are aunts and uncles, we've got the ability to see how leading a family spiritually can bless them. It's a challenge for us to do something. Let's pick up in verse 25 and see what happens when a family together has faith. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because he'd have been killed for letting all the prisoners go anyway. Because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole household, it says it four times. Now, here is both an eye-opening statement and a challenging statement. It's not impossible to follow Jesus with no family support, but it's not easy either. And those of you who are in that position, you would, you, would, you would agree with that. There are some of you in here, it's not impossible to follow Jesus without the support of your family. Some of you are doing that. Your parents think you're crazy. Your friends think you're crazy. Um, your siblings think you're crazy. Your extended relatives think you're crazy. When you get together at Thanksgiving, you are the butt of jokes. When you get together at Christmas, you are the one they're talking. It's not, it's not easy to follow Jesus when you're the only one. But it's, but it's not impossible. Which tells us that if, if you came from a family that didn't love Jesus and you have somehow managed to connect to Jesus, you, you truly are one of the few and you've had, it the, you've had it the hard way. But for those of us who are parents, of teenagers to children, when we see the reality of this, here's what we realize. This is the second instance in the book of Acts where a strong leader placed his family where God was moving and the entire family was impacted. Cornelius did it in Acts chapter 10, and now we see the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. 
It's a dad standing up and saying, Jesus has impacted my life, and as long as you're under my roof, you're going to have to hear about it. And I can't choose for you, and I can't make you follow, and I can't make you love Jesus, and I can't make you have a heart for God. But Jesus has impacted my life, and as a leader, I'm going to put you around Jesus until you're not under my control anymore, and we're just going to see what happens. And in Philippians 16, the miraculous happened. The entire household said, I want to love God like Dad loves God. I want to love God like Mom loves God. We saw Lydia from Thyatira do the same thing, where after being converted, she said, I want you to talk to my family too. So we see the strength of a woman who says, my family's going to follow Jesus together. We can't force it, but we can keep pushing our families around God and we can try to help. Because here's what happens. When the faith of your family and the faith of a friend reinforce your faith, according to Scripture, your faith becomes supernaturally strong. If you are a Christian who is from a strong Christian family, and your best friends are Christians, you have the ability to have a faith that is almost like Teflon, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says about having your faith reinforced with others. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, Solomon says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Here's what we learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. For those of us who lead families, we personally cannot make our kids love God, but we can work hard to make sure that, our, that we surround our kids with people who love God because that will reinforce their faith. And you and I may not have come from a family where our families deeply love God, but you and I can choose to risk surrounding ourselves with people who love Jesus and hope that that will reinforce our faith. Because when our best friends love Jesus like we love Jesus and our family loves Jesus like we love Jesus, Ecclesiastes 4 says something happens that is strong spiritually. Two weeks ago, I, I, I kind of had this reality awakened for me. I feel like I've lived kind of a charmed life spiritually. I mean, God has been so good to me and the things that, that often bothered others spiritually never really hit me spiritually. And as I studied for this message and I, and, and I lived my life, a light bulb went off that, it, that Ecclesiastes 4 is real, at least it's been real in my life, because one of my best friends in the world celebrated his 38th birthday on July 17th. He was my best friend that I met the first day of junior high football. His, his name was Todd, and Todd and I were inseparable from seventh grade, really kind of through college. Um, I was talking to Christian this week. They had their junior high football camp, um, and getting him ready for his first day. I said, I met my best friend in life on my first day of junior high football. And he celebrated his 38th birthday on July 17th. So I sent him a text. He's a doctor of economics now at Indiana University, teaches economics. Um, and I just said, hey man, happy birthday. Um, I think about you every day on this day. And the older I get, the more grateful I am that you were in my life. Because I am. I realize he made it easier for me to be a Christian because he was a Christian too. And I never had to convince him to follow along what I believe was right. Just, when I was with him, Christianity was easy. And he sent back a text a few hours later and said, thanks, 
um, I agree. And he said, I often pray that my son Jackson, Jackson's his oldest son, he said, I often pray that Jackson finds someone like you and your dad in his life. Because my dad was his and my football coach. And I read that text, and, I, and for the first time I thought, this is why it's been so easy for me spiritually for so long. One, my dad is the greatest Christian man that I know. And he always, he always supported me walking with Jesus and held me accountable when I didn't. So it was easy at home to live for Jesus because that's, that's what we did. And it was easy when I wasn't at home because the only people I hung out with followed Jesus like I did. I always felt pretty good about myself spiritually, but this week I read Ecclesiastes 4 and I reflected on this text and I thought, I don't think it was me. I think it was what reinforced me. I think it was my friends and my family that made my faith strong. Not, not me. I just was in the right place at the right time in the right family with the right friends. And man, look what God has done. And if you're here today, you want stronger faith, one of the biggest steps for you is to risk engaging in some kind of Christian relationship. Risk if you have a best friend in the world who doesn't know Jesus. Talking to them about Jesus so they can help you in your faith. Risk if you're a parent whose family isn't following God. Risk bringing them and saying, as long as you're under my control. This is the way we're going to do things in our house. And see if God doesn't reinforce your faith and the faith of people around you so that you live a truly blessed life. Let's pray together.